welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Hey church, I want to show you a series of images, and as you're watching them, asking yourself, what do these images have in common? So just take a look. You can see them as they're scrolling through. What do these images have in common? So maybe this is going to state the obvious, but these are all things that are made to stay in one place, right? They are not, it's not good if these things move. They're made to stay in one place. If they move, um, that's bad, could be catastrophic. People could even lose their lives if those things that were made to stay in one place end up moving. Now, let me show you a second set of images. And again, you're asking, well, what do these images have in common? I know the smarties of you in the group are already knowing where this is going. So play it out. What do these images have in common? These are all things that are made to move. They're actually not made to stay in one place. If they do stay in one place for too long, they will rust, they will decay, they will atrophy, they will fail their purpose. They might even do damage if they don't move because they were made to move. So let me ask you this. What kind of thing is the church? Is the church something that was made to stay in one place? Or is the church something that was made to move? Why don't you take a couple minutes, philosophical question, take a few minutes with people around you and discuss what, what kind of thing is the church? Is it something made to stay in one place or is it something that was made to move? All right, well, I'll ask you to just kind of bring your discussions to a close. You started something interesting. You can talk about it at the 30-minute party. Um, it's kind of a trick question, right? <laughs> and I'll explain why it's a trick question. And actually, more importantly, I'll explain to you why it matters. Like if you're new to church, let's say this is your first time to church or first time in a long time, my explanation of that question is going to help you understand why maybe you've stayed away from church or why you maybe had a bad experience in church. 
Um, if you're a part of this community, it might help explain perhaps bad experiences you've had in other churches or things that aren't quite right. And hopefully it'll help explain why when the church is what it's supposed to be, it's one of the greatest gifts that God ever gave us. <clears throat> now, here's what I mean. The writers of the scriptures actually describe the church um, in three different ways. They describe it as a family, as an organism, and as a movement. A family, an organism, or sometimes the body, a body like an organism, and a movement. And here's the thing. The church needs to recognize and understand its identity as a family and an organism and a movement and function in all those ways. In any way it ignores any one of those aspects of being the church, it struggles, it stumbles. It ends up possibly even like failing its purpose or destroying other people if it misses the fact that it is a family, an organism, and a movement. The church is a family. Maybe this is, hopefully, one of the more intuitive ones. The church is described as the family of God, a family of faith, a community where grace and love and radical hospitality, welcome, generosity, kindness, mutuality, care, love, prayer is meant to happen. The interpersonal relationships of people, it's like when it works well, it's the best family on earth because sometimes our own biological family, have we have issues. There's baggage. No Biological family is perfect. No church family is perfect. But the church is not necessarily made up of people who are united by blood or by uh, ethnicity, skin color, or a socioeconomic background. It's a family of God brought together. And when the church works well as a family, it's amazing. <clears throat> when it struggles, when it fails to care and love and show grace and, and be generous and hospitable and mutually dependent, um, then it struggles. It does damage, right? It has to function as a family because that's part of what it is. Likewise, the church is an organism. An organism means just like your body, which actually the church is often referred to, your body is an organism. It has systems and structures in it. Now, the body and totality is not simply meant to be a structure or a system. It, our skeletal structure that holds us together isn't shown on the outside. Our humanness is. But without the skeletal structure, without your respiratory system, without the nervous system, without uh, all of the systems and structures inside the body, it will fail to be healthy and achieve its purpose. And likewise, a church needs to have systems and structures and places so that leaders are held accountable so that um, money is handled with propriety and above board and without scandal and without um, indiscretion. Um, <clears throat> the, the ways that conflict is managed or how people are helped and cared for, how things are just organized in a way like organi organisms need organization. And so that's a part of what it means to be the church. And if it fails in any of those things, it fails to achieve its purpose. Other people fall through the cracks. People are not noticed. Things are mismanaged. Conflict is not done well. Those are the things that the organism needs to have in order to be healthy. But it also is a movement, as in it was made to be on a mission, to achieve something, to be a dynamic, ever-changing, ever-growing community that is moving towards something. That's maybe easier to see why, um, uh, you know, the church as a family and an organism needs to function away. But often a movement, the church as a movement, can be forgotten. And the day the church forgets it's a movement is the day it begins to die. Because we were made 
to be a part of a, of a movement. And, and not just like any kind of random movement, like just and like erratic movement, a movement that is driven and fueled by this word mission. The church joins the mission of God in the world. God himself is on a mission. God is, is, a, is a God who moves. <laughs> he is in movement, in motion, bringing his healing, his redemption, his grace, his forgiveness, his restoration, his reconciliation, his wholeness and health to the world. Everyone in the world and the world itself, scriptures tell us, are being moved towards a place of redemption and healing and reconciliation and wholeness by God. That is the mission God is on in the world, and he invites the church to be on mission with him. And so we are actually in a series right now, we're just starting this fall, called Live on Mission, joining God's <clears throat> invitation to adventure, to live on mission together as a community. It's the movement part of our identity as the church. And here's why we're doing this series right now. Um, Many of you are new to our church. We took a survey a little while ago, just a few months, of who was in the room on a Sunday morning in all three of our sites, in King and Bolton and Vaughn. And 25% of you said that you're new to the church in the last year. And then probably another percentage of you within the last couple of years. There are many of you I'm meeting who joined us during the pandemic, joined us online. And so many of you don't have a sense of like, well, what is the movement part, the mission part of this church? What is it about? Where is it heading? How does it understand its role in joining God in his mission? And so that's for those of you that are new. But even for all of us in the room, if I can say this, the last couple of years with the pandemic and shutdowns and then a lot of the stress and crisis and like even personal crises that many of you have gone through in the last few years, we've had to lean into our identity as a family and as an organism, right? We've had to lean into family and just trying to care for each other, making sure people were getting, we were getting through something together. We had to lean into our, our the systems in our organism saying, hey, we're, we're a church in three places and we're coming back um, from being online for a while into in-person and, and relearning what it means to be together as the church. And so we've leaned into how do we have healthy systems and structures and how do we organize ourselves? <coughs> but then sometimes when that, what gets neglected in a season like that, when you're leaning heavily into family and organism, is movement. And so we are at a time where we really believe it's so important for us to recapture God's mission in the world. And what does it mean for us as a church to join him on that? Because we were made to move. And if we don't move, we get rusty. We get stuck. We get um, insular and selfish and stuck in our ways. And we fail to actually achieve all that God has created us to be. And not just the church. The church is the people. You yourself were made to be on movement, on mission with God so for your own sense of purpose and fulfillment and joy in your life as you follow him. And so our prayer and hope over these next three weeks is that you will capture a renewed sense of purpose and calling and hear God's invitation to you personally to join him on this adventure of living on mission with him as you are part of not just a family, not just an organism, but a movement. And so uh, for the rest of today, we want to just camp out on a really what I would say is the beginning point <clears throat> of this movement. As we as a staff team and our board of elders uh, met earlier in the spring to work on our strategic plan, we prayed and we asked Jesus this question, Jesus, what do you have for us? What is most important to you? This is your mission. What is it that you want us to do to join you in what you're doing? 
And the thing that, w- that kept coming up to the top of the list for us, the, the most important, the thing that we would say we felt the, the most weight to is the thing that, in fact, <coughs> excuse me, every movement has to take into account. And if, and, if, and if a movement fails at this one thing, it will eventually die out. Every movement, no matter any kind, if it fails at this one thing, it will eventually die out. So it's no surprise to us that this was the thing that God kept bringing to the top of the list of what was closest to his heart and what he wanted us to be paying attention to as a church. And really, if I can say it like this, that over the next 10 years, that we as a church need to commit ourselves to equipping and encouraging the next generation to take over. That over the next 10 years, we as a church would commit ourselves, and we, as in all of us, whatever age you are, if you would consider yourself in that next generation or not, that we would commit ourselves to equipping and encouraging the next generation to take over. And I say take over, that's kind of strong language, but what I don't mean is, oh, we just hope that the next generation stays in church. Friends, that's too lame, too weak of a vision for the next generation. That's not the mission of God. Of God. That's gonna, it's going to take way more than church attendance for, for us to help uh, to be a part of the mission of God in bringing healing and reconciliation and redemption to this world. And it's more than just like, hey, oh, we have to care for them or do a good job or make sure that they are okay in their lives. No, it's actually equipping and encouraging them to lead, to take over, to step into everything that God has for them. Over these next 10 years, this is what we need to do. We need to commit ourselves to it. And the thing is, the reason it has to happen is because it will happen. (laughs) And here's what I mean by that. And and maybe this math is going to blow your minds, okay? But like, we have about 150 people under the age of 18, or 18 and under at our church, 150. Now, just for perspective, the average church in Canada has less than 100 people as a part of it, the average church in Canada. So we have a group of young people, 18 and under, who are significantly larger than the average church in Canada in totality. And I don't say that to go, oh, look at us. I say that to go, whoa, that is a serious entrustment of riches, of wealth that God has given to us in the next generation. We have to care for them well. We have to do a good job with what he has put in our hands as a church. And the thing is, if we do nothing about it, our church will dramatically change in 10 years, no matter what. Our church has to dramatically change in 10 years because it will no matter what. And here's what I mean. Those who are eight in 10 years are going to be 18. I know the math is blowing your minds. Okay, simple math. Those who are eight are going to be 18. Why does that matter? Well, if I look at the last few years in our church, the 15, 16, 17, 18, 19-year-olds have helped us restart as a church. We could not, and I've said this to you before, we could not be where we are right now in three sites as a church if our young people had not stepped up on worship teams, on tech teams, on video teams, graphics, website, to actually help us get back into and move forward into what God had next for us. We wouldn't be here without our young people. When many of you I'm just going to be frank. When many of you over 30 were quite happy to sit at home and keep watching church online, our young people were helping us get back on our feet. We had over 35 of them as LITs and uh, camp counselors this year at our day camp looking after over 70 kids, grade school kids. 
We had so many of them leading. They have led us in prayer this last year. They have led us in worship this last year. They have helped make our church just look better, even on the screen and on the websites and all of that. They have been a part, and they have been the ones relationally sticky, like staying together and committing to stay together through the last couple of years. Friends, those ones who were 15, 16, 17, 18 did that. So the ones who were eight right now in 10 years will be 18. And so it's going to happen all over again. The ones who look really too little maybe to care for themselves, they're the ones that are going to be leading the way 10 years from now. And we have to be a pay, pay attention to that. And the ones who are 18 are going to be 28. Again, crazy math, I know. What does that mean? It means the ones who are teenagers 10 years from now are going to be leading in the marketplace or teaching or having their own kids or working on their masters or going and starting a new company or being um, a, a, a manager of a shift or a, a, of a, on the shop floor. They are going to be leading and influencing in all of the places that they are in the world from 18 to 28 in the next 10 years. And we want them to be doing the same, to be leading us and influencing us and shaping and creating and leading this community of faith into what God has next for us. And so this is going to happen no matter what. And so it takes actually all of us to be involved in it. <clears throat> from day one of our church, when we started, and I and a few others were privileged to be a part of this community from the beginning, this was the sense, even when we were very small, that God was entrusting us with a generation that would eventually, we would hand the baton to, that would take us into what he has next. And that time is now. And it involves everyone from two to 92. See, this isn't ageism. This isn't like, oh, if you're not young, you're not important. Oh, our focus is being on the young people and not the people over 30 or over 25 or whatever you want to say your age is. That's not the point. In fact, the older you are, the more important you are. As you continue to grow and mature, you are more and more needed in the mission of God in the world, and especially when it comes to equipping and empowering the next generation to take over. But who's going to do that except the present generation, the older generation? So how will that happen? I mean, in one sense, this is something we're just praying continually for God to be able to do. But what does it mean for us as a whole community, young and old, whether you consider yourself the next generation or older than the next generation? How will that actually happen? Well, we have actually a beautiful picture or a model from some of the pages in the New Testament. And not like chapter and verse as in instructions, do this, then do this, then do this. But actually, we get to see what it looks like when someone in an older generation um, pours into uh, to equip and encourage someone in the next generation to lead. And we see it through the lives of two people, actually two letters in the New Testament that were preserved for us from you know nearly 2,000 years ago. The letters are called 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. They are two letters to Timothy from, and you may not know Timothy, he's not a famous person. They're from one of the most famous people in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. He wrote practically half the New Testament. He's called an apostle. He's been called saint. There's beautiful cathedrals that have been constructed in his name. Um, people have written thousands and thousands of books about the letters that Paul wrote, about his teaching. They've debated him. Like there's been, he's very famous and well-known. Timothy, not so much. And yet we see a relationship of Paul, someone further on in the journey of faith, further on in the journey of life, and his relationship with Timothy, someone from the younger generation. And we're going to read, you're going to hear scripture, like excerpts just from these two letters in First and Second Timothy, a sampling that I think gives us a picture of what was their relationship like and what did each of them, hear me, each of them do 
to actually make sure that the next generation was equipped and empowered in the name of Jesus to take over and to continue on the movement in joining God in the mission he was on. So just listen to these sampling of verses, and then we're going to talk about, okay, how does that help us in what God is calling us to do at the well? Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and, I am persuaded, now lives in you also. Flee the evil desires of you and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. To the young and the not young. These two letters and the sampling here that was read for you um, really actually give us a picture of what does it mean to be in relationship with each other and to see um, the baton pass and what does it mean for generations to continue to join God and his mission and to keep the movement moving. <clears throat> well, let me first just talk to can I say this, the older ones in the room? And I'm going to just, don't shoot me, okay? But I'm just going to say over 30, <laughs> okay? Over 30, just for basis of perspective to sort of locate yourself in this conversation. There's a few things that we see Paul doing um, or that describe kind of his relationship with Timothy as a younger person. And I want you to listen. It's just a few of those things that I'll, I'll pull up. First of all, we draw from these passages that Paul knew Timothy, his story, and he loved him as a person. Um, the second letter, some of what was read for you in 2 Timothy, opens up with just a description of, of, of his love for Timothy and just like the connection, the deep sense of connection that he obviously wrote in personal letters. He knew his family. He knew his story um, and, and cared about him. There was a relational investment that obviously this letter says that over time, Paul had spent a lot of time with this young man and was connected to him. Secondly, Paul called out the things in Timothy that were good and godly. He pointed out to him, he said, I see this in you. I see your faith. I see these qualities. He was, he was pointing out to him, calling him out, not in a negative way, calling out the things that he saw in him that were admirable and good and the things that were godly. There's other times where he says like, you know, you have gifts that God has given you. You need to cultivate those. He was calling out what he saw in him, right? Things that maybe Timothy didn't see in himself or maybe... You know, he was facing criticism for other people, and he needed to be reminded by someone like Paul, hey, I see this in you. I notice this about you. This is good. This is beautiful. This is the work of God in you. I see it. You may not see it, but I see it. <clears throat> then he was honest about the truth and dangers. Uh, and like, he, he spoke the truth about the dangers and traps that a young person needed to avoid. 
Um, in 2 Timothy 2, he says, flee. And he lists a bunch of things. Run away from these things. Hey, d- flee a bunch of these things and don't get involved in all of these arguments. And man, do we all need to just take that advice. Like stop getting into useless arguments about so many things, right? And now we have all these forums and social media platforms that have given us many uh, opportunities for arguments about all kinds of things. He's like, avoid that. That's a trap. Don't get stuck in that. Flee these dangers, some of the temptations of youth. Paul was being honest with him. He wasn't just encouraging me and saying, hey, you're doing a great job. They're there. He's not a grandfather just says, hey, whatever you do, I don't care. I just love you. He's like, no, these are things I see in you. They're amazing and good. And by the way, watch out for this. Watch out for this. And don't get stuck in this. He was warning him about some of the temptations and the dangers of youth. Paul also encouraged him to step up and lead even though he was young, right? He says that, and maybe this is a verse some of you have heard before. Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Why was he saying that? Well, maybe because people were looking down on him. He was a leader maybe, and people questioned, oh, what do you know? You're the only this age, or you don't have that experience. And Paul says, hey, don't let anyone look down on you because of that. Set an example. Your life can lead others by how you live. He was encouraging him, don't shrink back from leadership just because you don't think you're adequate or don't think you're, you're uh, old enough. Get in there. You can do it. Nobody should look down on you just because you're young. Don't listen to the haters. Step up. <laughs> and then he also, you guys might have thought, this is an odd verse, like, why are we talking about Timothy's, like, um, stomach troubles? He's like, hey, I know you've been drinking water mostly for your stomach troubles, but drink a little wine. It's just a little comment that actually tells you he knew and cared about I mean, gave practical advice to Timothy about the, just the daily struggles. He was having stomach issues. Who knows how long he had them for, but he knew Timothy's drinking water and it's not working. So he says, okay, take a little wine. He cared about him as a person and knew about the everyday stuff. And it's not a, not a super spiritual verse. It's just a verse that cared for his everyday life and gave him some practical advice. These are just a few things you see that describe how Paul related to and saw Timothy. And what's obvious from all of the, you read these two letters in totality, he knew him well and cared about him as a person and was deeply invested in his personal and spiritual growth. People over 30, it may seem young to listen to what I'm about to say, but It's time to stop thinking about building your platform and your career and where you're going next and being so obsessed about all of those things. Not that they don't matter, but you're already in the stage of life where you can begin to and need to pour into those who are coming along behind you to see who is my life influencing? How am I meant to influence others? In fact, Arthur Brooks in his book, Strength to Strength, he's done a lot of social science studies. He's a professor at Harvard, wins best professor, you know, a few years in a row, Um, very bright guy. He said, actually, for many of us, for most careers, you peak, they peak around late 30s into 40s. And then he said, most people just spend the backside of that curve trying to fight to keep the success and creativity and ingenuity and and energy that they had that made them successful in the first part. He said, what they need to do is stop trying to be as great as they were when they were 30 or 40 and get onto the next curve, which is about equipping those coming behind them who are in their teens and 20s and heading into their 30s. So this isn't about like not caring about what we're doing in life, but actually starting to shift our perspective saying, who's coming along behind me? And here's the thing. If you're a part of this Church of the Well, you do not leave to look far because there are 150, 18 and under, and even more, 30 and under. There are people everywhere you look that you could 
uh, be thinking about, oh, what does it mean for me to lift my head up from my own life and think about who can I have an influence on? <coughs> we don't do it perfectly. I'll tell you that. Just recently, I dropped my oldest son off at school, and so he's left home for a few years, probably be back. But I was praying for him a couple weeks ago, and I had this moment where I was sitting there praying, and I actually just started to think, kind of felt sad about some of the ways that I failed him as a dad. You know, and I started to think about things that I didn't do that I should have done, and now I ran out of time to do. Things that I should have said that I didn't say, or perhaps things that I did do or did say that I wish I hadn't. And it kind of led me into a little bit of repentance before God. It wasn't a bad thing. I didn't need somebody at that point to say, oh, don't worry, you've been great. I needed to just be honest about the fact that there were ways that I had failed him. And it was actually felt really cathartic to just confess that to, you know, I've confessed some of those things to him, but to God and to renew my commitment to him, to my kids, but actually to many of our young people and saying, okay, but I want to keep growing, God. I don't want to miss opportunities. I don't want to give up pouring in to the next generation. And actually... My son Noah and a couple of his friends who um, senior highs got baptized earlier in the spring, and all of them have kind of grown up at this church. And as they were giving their stories and getting baptized, I was looking out and seeing so many of you, so many faces of people that poured into them when they were kids in youth group or when they were, you were over at our home and you saw them and hung out with them and paid attention to them as an equal valid member of our family or worked with them in youth group or served alongside them in different teams. And what was interesting is at our church, when you get baptized, you invite someone up to be your encourager. Do you know that none of them, they all came from Christian homes and families that have helped them grow in faith, but none of them asked a family member to be their encourager. And that's not a bad thing at all. They asked people from the church family, the broader community of people that have all been a part of shaping them. To me, I'm like, oh, that's what's going on. (laughs) That even though I fall short as a parent, and we all do, and none of us do this perfectly, together we collectively make a difference as we invest and care for those in the next generation. So what about the younger ones, those of you under 30? Well, what do we learn from these letters about Timothy and his connection to Paul? (coughs) First, we see that Timothy learned from the generations that had gone before him, right? It says that the influences of Paul and others and his mother and his grandmother, and Paul says, you've learned all of these people, and Timothy had. He had actually been willing to learn from the previous generations, It's easy to call out the older generations for what they haven't done. And that is part of the role of youth, to point out what hasn't been done. But it's actually hard to learn and necessary, though, to learn to say, yeah, but even though they weren't perfect, there are things that we need. Just because someone's dead doesn't mean they aren't wise. We have a bias to whatever's new and whatever's latest, and anything that sounds old or seems old or is old is irrelevant. And that's just not true. And so as a young person like Timothy, you need to be willing to be willing to learn from older generations and recognize how all those people imperfectly, yes, have shaped you. Timothy, secondly, had clearly invested in relationships that meant something to him. Paul references the tears that Timothy had when Paul left because Paul had to move on from where Timothy lived. And Timothy cried and, and Paul remembered that. So Timothy clearly was connected. He wasn't just learning from this person information about God. He felt supported and strengthened and encouraged by Paul and cared for so that when Paul left, he cried. He was deeply connected to him (coughs) as part of the body of faith. Thirdly, and this is a big one, Timothy was willing to lead in complicated and challenging situations. 
<laughs> you read these two letters, man, Paul has to address a whole lot of stuff that Timothy, as a leader, is responsible for. In marriages, even though we don't, doesn't seem like Timothy was married, um, in leadership situations, in churches and places where he hadn't been a leader for very long, in all kinds of complexities that he was still young at, maybe that's why he had to say, hey, don't let anyone look down on you or young. You have to lead people who are older than you, and you have to lead people who are in complicated situations, and you have to lead people through complicated situations. Don't shrink back. You can do this. And Timothy clearly was willing. He was in a leadership role. He didn't shrink back. He was asking Paul for advice and saying, hey, how do I deal with this? How do I deal with that? I'm staying in here, but you got to help me. And then, clearly, Timothy read the scriptures from the time he was young. It says, um, Paul says, oh, you've known the scriptures from infancy. Now, I don't think Timothy was a prodigy who could read when he was an infant. <laughs> what he's, Paul's saying is, your whole life has been shaped by God's word. You have been immersed in God's word your whole life. It has shaped you as a person. Friends, these are things, just a few things from these letters that whatever age you are, invite us into an intentionality and what it looks like to be a part of the movement that sees the next generation equipped and encouraged to lead, to influence, to shape, to create, to take over. And so what does that mean for us? Well, join the movement. Sounds really inspiring, doesn't it? Well, let me tell you what that actually means that is not inspiring at all and that, that is a bad word in our culture. It means you have to commit. Commit to do something. <coughs> commit. Not just kind of casually dabble or be involved in it or if I feel like it or if I have time for it or whatever. You know any meaningful relationship in your life you don't just dabble in. You don't just do something here and there. You don't just do something if you have time for it, if you feel like it. Any relationship of substance requires a commitment to do stuff. And that's true about the movement we have as a church. Now, if you're here and you're new and it's first few months, you don't have to commit to anything other than just come back. Keep coming to these gatherings to be a part and see, is this the kind of family and organism and movement that I want to be a part of, that I feel called to be a part of, even if you're still exploring the journey of faith, that this is part of that whole thing. But if you are here, and maybe even only for a year, but you're like, yeah, this is home. Yeah, this is where we're going to be. This is where I want to be. This is where we're going to be. This is where our family is going to be. This is the movement and organism and family we want to be a part of. Then I would encourage you, don't just dabble. Don't just do stuff here and there. Commit. And here's a, I'm going to tell you what that might mean and two reasons why you won't want to do it. <laughs> you can commit. Some of you commit to building connections with the next generation. <clears throat> that may mean serving in our kids' ministry. We have, we have needs for people to serve in our kids' ministry or serving in our Friday night senior high and junior high youth ministry. In some way, connecting meaningfully on a regular basis, committing to be a regular part of these 150 kids from 18 and under. could be just being in your home group. We don't do affinity-based home groups. We don't do age-based home groups. <clears throat> so there are multiple generations in your home group. There are people, chances are, younger than you in your home group, a younger person, a younger couple. What does it mean to show up for them and just to be a part of their lives, to be deeply committed to showing up for home group because those people will be there because it's not just about you. Young adults, you guys have way more influence in our young people's lives. For those of us who are parents, like we're so, you know, like you're way cooler than us. You're much closer to them. You're closer to their age. You understand their role way better than we do. Your voice, <clears throat> your role in their lives makes a huge difference. So don't check out of that and say, oh, well, I'm, not, I'm not even 30 or I'm not whatever. I can't. No, like make a commitment to invest 
to, to uh, maximize connections and opportunities with the next generation. Let me just talk to you if you're a junior high and senior high, you're that 18 and under. Take a cue from Timothy, commit to or keep reading scripture every day. The Bible reading plan you guys have, you are shaped by God's word and God's voice and God's life and God's way of dealing with people and his wisdom in the world. You need it in your life. Commit to being at youth every week because it's not just about you. It's actually about you showing up for everyone else who is there. It's a commitment, not something you dabble in, not something I feel like today I'm tired or I don't think it's a, it's a night that's gonna be fun. Show up, be there. Commit to serving in some way in our broader church, like to get to know the older generations. Like if you serve on the worship team or you serve on a setup team or you serve hospitality, you're gonna be around people like that. Commit to inviting your friends regularly to youth or to church. It's a commitment to say, yeah, I'm in. Perhaps for all of us, or at least all of us earning an income in some way, commit to giving towards our church's goal for this year. Our church is growing and we have, uh, other than our facilities, um, like our rent and stuff like that's committed, almost 20% of our budget directly goes to youth ministry <clears throat> um, in our staff and our programs. But collectively, we're seeing the church growing and we want to, we're serving more people within our community and around our community. And so our giving goal for next year is, or for this year is 20% more. And so that means many of us need to commit maybe to give regularly or to give for the first time. Um, or to say, hey, if God's blessed me with more, I can give more. We don't worry about who gives. I don't know who gives, but commitment involves that as well as we say, yeah, I'm in. It's a part of demonstrating I'm in, I'm with this movement. Those are just a few of the ways that you could be committing yourselves to be a part of what God is gonna do in our church over the next 10 years. But let me tell you two big fat lies that will keep you from this. The movement doesn't need me and I don't need the movement. These are two lies that every movement people struggle with and threaten to undo the whole thing. Oh, the movement doesn't need me. Other people will do it. I'm just a small part, or I don't have anything to give, or I don't really have any wisdom to pass on, or I'm just sort of new here, or what would people want from me, and I don't really know where I fit, or I'm too busy. The movement doesn't need me. It'll carry on without me. It's actually a lie. As that idea spreads, every movement comes apart, right? The truth is no. Each one of us is an essential part of the movement and the thing that God is doing. And the other lie is, I don't need the movement. I'm fine. I'm busy enough. But God has invited you into his adventure to live on mission and injects sense of purpose and relationships and vitality in your life. And I know this has been so true in my life that I am not the same person. I have been so shaped and changed by this movement of the church that I've been a part of, that um, as other people have poured into me, and now I'm trying to do that with other people, it has been essential to my life. I desperately needed it, even though at the time, maybe I thought, I don't know if I need it. And I'll tell you what will change and make those lies sound like nonsense. <laughs> Just change the word the to my. My movement doesn't need me. It doesn't make any sense, does it? Right? If this thing moves from being the movement to my movement, the lie won't make any sense anymore. Of course my movement needs me. This is mine. This is my church. This is my family. I'm a part of this movement. This is mine. <clears throat> and I don't need my movement. <laughs> doesn't make any sense, right? Of course you do. This is the thing that God has brought you into if you're a part of this church. And as you go from taking the word the and making it my, 
you are able to have a sense of ownership and buy-in and commitment to the movement, and we let God do the rest.